This podcast is brought to you by Church Society, a fellowship contending to reform and renew the Church of England in biblical faith. information about Church Society and all the things that we do on our website churchsociety.org. You'll also find there the full archive of the podcast. Well welcome to another Church Society podcast. I'm joined again by Lee Gatis, the director of Church Society. My name is Chris Moore. I'm one of the regional directors which makes me a slightly lesser being to Lee and we're here to talk about old books because in one way or another we've all engaged with old books. So um I suppose the thing to do is start by asking a question, and and the simple question is this, Lee, why should we read anything that's old? Surely it's out of date. Surely it's been superseded by modern cutting-edge scholarship. Surely we should allow the past to be the past. You're right, Chris. Yeah, that's it. We should. Let's be chronologically snobs uh, so that we, we just think that anything that's not written this year is completely passé. Um, and pointless. Why would we read that? It was written last year. Why would we read that? It was written last century, um, and so on. So you're right. We can pretty much end this conversation now. Um, There we go. We'll just call it Coffee with Chris, shall we? And I'll just get my coffee now, and uh, and we can just chat about something else. C.S. Lewis called it chronological snobbery. I got that phrase from him uh, in a great introduction he wrote to... um, Athanasius's book on the incarnation, an old book. Um, and he said, why should we read old books like this? Um, uh, shouldn't, shouldn't we have this sort of chronological snobbery where we, we don't bother, we look down our noses at uh, old books, but actually there's so much in them that we need to, to read uh, and to learn from that we, we ought to be looking at, that things that are not just written this century even, um, because it will be helpful to us. I think he also said something about how the medieval people idolised old books, um, things that came to them from afar, from the ancient mists of history, and they couldn't possibly ever contradict those old books. They, you know, they wouldn't ever dare to say bosh to, uh, to an old book and something that was in it, because they, they, they reverenced them too much and tried to harmonise them with the truth, even if it seemed a long way away from the truth. Um, so he wasn't, he wasn't foolish, C.S. Lewis, in his approach to old books. He, he knew that we could um, reverence them too much. Well, I think there is certainly something in that. And uh, there can be, a, yes, a certain love for a certain period or whatever it might be. I, I mean, I'm well versed with the idea that whatever is said, however outrageous it may be, if it was said by a Puritan, well, it must be true. So I think there can be a, a bit of that as an issue. But nonetheless, well, certainly speaking personally, you you do get a sense that if old books have survived, then you've got 100, 200 a millennium even, of people weighing it and sifting it and saying, yes, it's still there and worthy to be read. So in a sense, the ones that survive and are still in print have gone through the quality control process quite a bit. Is, is that fair, do you think? Or is that me being naive? I think in general that's true, that if something has been uh, printed several hundred years ago and then reprinted and reprinted and it's still in print today, there's probably something in it that's worth keeping and worth reflecting on, particularly Christian books. Um, there are a lot of books which haven't been reprinted, and that's usually for a good reason. 
Um, they may have been useful in their day, but not uh, for the long term. There are some gems that I've discovered in my own uh, sort of digging around. There's some gems in the past that haven't been reprinted and ought to have been. But in general, uh, if something has survived several hundred years, it's probably it's probably worth our while keeping it and uh, reflecting on why different generations have thought this was worth spending time and effort on. Um, and uh, do you think that there can be a relevancy for a, a book that was written for a different time and for a different sort of readership, a different nation almost in, in many different ways? Well, as a Christian, I would say yes to that because um, <laughs> quite a lot of the Bible <laughs> yes. is, as you just described, it was written in a different time, in a different place and for a, a different audience. I mean, none of the Bible was written directly in its first instance uh, for 21st century white middle class English Protestants um, such as us, Chris. It was it was written for um, for a different time, different place for, for Jewish people living in the Middle East thousands of years ago. But there's, there is a relevance to those books. Of course there is. It is God's word written for us today. And so I think, I think there's uh, a, a transferable um, lesson there for us to learn that, that old books can have a relevance today. Now, of course, God's word does. Um, but there are other things we can learn uh, from the past as well. Now, I mean, when Christians talk about this, they're often talking about things like the ancient fathers, you know, the patristic uh, period, the patristic books and the councils of the church from the early church and so on. Um, and I've heard some people say, well, if you start reading those, if you start reading patristics, if you start reading the early church fathers, you end up being a, a Roman Catholic. I don't think you become a Roman Catholic by, by reading old books. You become a more informed Protestant rather than a dumb and ignorant one is what you become. Don't you think? I think, I, I think that's certainly true. I mean, I, I was very struck when um, I started reading people like Spurgeon, how much he quoted from the Church Fathers. And again, you think of Spurgeon as being the most evangelical, the evangelical preachers of the 20th century. And then, of course, you realise that he's doing that because he himself has read an earlier generation and you read the Puritans who are often engaging with the Church Fathers, sort of Gregory Nazianzus and other obscure people like that. And then you see, well, of course, they're doing that because they're reading and drawing on the first generation of reformers. And so Calvin, you read through the Institutes, is quoting from. And I think there is that sense that we have to, personally speaking, we have to try and understand that with, with Protestantism, it's not as if we're something new, but rather we're simply reforming something which is old and trying to restore in many ways to what the church would have been a number of years before. So I think just because we share a heritage, we shouldn't see that as a threat. We should be, you know, almost in a sense, wanting to say we are more patristic than other branches of the church because we are actually much more in line. And particularly as Anglicans, we, we hold that in our formularies that, you know, as long as they're you know, in line with the scriptures, we pay high regard to the patristics. Yeah, that's right. The reformers said, you know, Augustine is with us. Uh, so the early church, Father Augustine, was entirely on the side of the reformers when it came to um, those major doctrines that they were arguing about. But Augustine isn't entirely with us, actually, on everything. He was wrong about a few things because he wasn't sufficiently biblical. He didn't know his Greek and Hebrew and hadn't read the Bible in that sort of detail. Um, so there are things where we have to be discerning, which is why the Church of England's canon law says that we we are grounded in the Holy Scriptures. That's where our doctrine comes from. 
And mm. in such teachings of the ancient fathers and councils of the church as are agreeable to those scriptures. So we have to read the ancient fathers and councils of the church, the creeds and so on. That's absolutely vital and essential for us. And uh, we take on their teachings, but only as they're agreeable to the scriptures. The scriptures are supreme as our authority, but the ancient books have, and the councils and creeds very much have a place in, uh, in what we believe. No, I think that's in, entirely the case. And I think as well, it, it, you have a benefit of engaging with a scholarship which doesn't share the presuppositions that we do in modern scholarship and is more willing in many ways to, to follow the scriptures where they may lead because they're not too concerned about what the wider academic academy might think. And I, I did my my research was on looking at how, particularly in John and Mark's Gospels, they were drawing on the Old Testament pattern of theophany as a way of portraying the incarnation of Jesus. And in that, really, uh, I shamelessly nicked, I mean, I, I did put this in the thesis, it wasn't too shameless, but shamelessly nicked from Justin Martyr, who wrote uh, a really uh, extraordinary dialogue with Trifo, brackets, a Jew, brackets, is the name of the book. But in it, he, he draws very clearly the appearances of, of Christ in the Old Testament. For him, it's almost as if every time God appears, that is Christ. And so he will see Jesus as the um, the one who appears to Abraham, or Jesus as the one who is the commander of the Lord's army. And he's doing this to try and demonstrate to his, his Jewish hearers that Christianity is entirely Old Testament quotes, biblical quotes, because we're simply drawing that out. Now, you may or may not like that argument. I, I personally do. But it's interesting that there's a real engagement with the scriptures there by a man who himself had been converted in Palestine, in, in Israel, in other words, and himself uh, converted by an old man who would have been hearing this stuff when it was still new. So it's nice to have that link back and to challenge some of the assumptions that we have as modern people, which often, to be honest, isn't they're not good always. <laughs> Past is a foreign country, they say. They, they do, do things, things strange there. there. Yes. <laughs> they do things differently there. And to be honest, they're not always wrong to do so because the way we do things isn't always correct and has been far too influenced by our culture, as, as every generation is. Um, and so reading old books of one kind or another can expose our current shallowness or the strange eccentricities of Christians today. There's a great quote where somebody said, the venerable dead are waiting in my library to entertain me and relieve me from the nonsense of surviving mortals. <laughs> I think there's definitely something Indeed. in that. And at the same time, Carl Truman made the point. Carl Truman is a, a good church historian, um, particularly of the 16th, 17th centuries. And he said that um, church history is helpful to us today because it's like a book of theological criminal mugshots. So it helps you spot a charlatan or a heretic today because charlatans and heretics have always been in the church in the past. And if you get to know the past through reading old books, then you can spot them today because there are patterns in the way that they operate sometimes. So um, read, read the mugshot 
Um, but there is nothing new under the sun. Well, exactly, as an old book indeed. called Ecclesiastes once said. <laughs> indeed, indeed, I think and there's so, a great quote well, um, in uh, in that that film about C.S. Lewis, Shadowlands, I think it was called, where somebody said to him, "We read to know we're not alone." I think that's great. We read to know we're not mm-hmm. alone. We're not the only ones ever to read the Bible or to try and reform a drifting church or to have conflict with false teaching. We're not the only ones to ever do those things. And so if we read the old books, we will see other people who read the Bible and have thoughts about it, and other people who try to reform and renew the church in biblical faith and what they've come up against in doing that. Other people who've countered false teaching and false teachers in their day, we're not the only ones to face that. There's nothing particularly unique in that way about our generation. And we need to learn from those who've done it in the past. It can be extremely helpful to us and humble for us to have that uh, attitude of, well, let's let's see if there's something we can learn from those who've dealt with this sort of thing before. And I, I, Entirely. And I think as well, it's, it's good to know that even, that we may feel that this is the worst time and the worst state the church has ever been in, to know that it has been bad, if not worse before, and we got through it, is a bit of an encouragement. I think we all have a tendency to think that, you know, in 60 years' time, that's going to be it. The Christian witness in this nation will have been passed, but it's it's not the case. And you, you read even the history of the evangelical revival in the 18th century. I wish I knew where this came from, but I'm sure I read somewhere that on Easter morning at St Paul's Cathedral in 1730-something, that there were six communicants who were listed, which ain't many for a big old cathedral. On Easter Day. J.C. Ryle mentions that uh, at the beginning of his book on the uh, Christian leaders of the 18th century. Well done. Look at you. Human concordance. Thank you. The revival of the 18th century into its yeah. into its context. It may not be the most fair comparison, of course. Um, but yes, that's where that comes that from. Matter? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, people do Actually, sometimes think there's no point learning from those sort of old things because, you know, we are the men and wisdom will die with us as Job puts it in uh, Job 12, you know, to his his, uh, his comforters. No doubt you are the men and wisdom dies with you. Uh, Paul said the same thing to the Corinthians who were idiosyncratic, eccentric, wild um, and strange and straying away from the universal church of his day. He said to the Corinthians, it's 1 Corinthians 14, um, did the word of God originate with you? Are you the only ones that the, the, the gospel has come to? No, of course you're not. So why are you off doing strange and eccentric things um, without realising that you're not the only ones in the world at the moment or in church history um, who've wrestled with these things and your answer is a little bit eccentric uh, to the questions of the day. So there is some helpful biblical wisdom on this as well. Mm, absolutely. So if, we, if we've whetted appetites, if people are now sort of straining, thinking I must I must find an old book to read and therefore I can be well educated. The next obvious question is, is where do we go? Now, I know you're going to say you can get a copy of the homilies from Church Society or some of Ryle's writings from Church Society. But it seems to me that we've got those resources. But there has been a renaissance of the republication of older books, I think, recently. And also the other extraordinary thing is the number of books that you can find online 
for free. Either scans in PDF scans of books and libraries at Harvard and others have put them online, but also sites like monogism.com, I think, maybe .org, who've got over a thousand ebooks for free, which you can download and read of these old things. So in a sense, we've got an embarrassment of riches and you sent, you're looking at sort of an enormous choice. Where do you start in the midst of all of that? Yes, we do have an embarrassment of riches nowadays. Um, there are there are things online now that would have taken people a, a long time to find in libraries and or to buy and to build up libraries in the past. You can just go to uh, Google Books or you can go to prdl.org, which is a, one of my favourite sites, uh, which has a, a whole load of millions of books, um, of Protestant, reform, digital stuff uh, that you can download for free. I mean, it's terrific. I think... I find it helpful to start with um, where, where ministers, uh, people like like us, are, are working every week, which is on scripture. So we're working on sermons every week um, and our teaching. So why don't we look at commentaries from the past? So it's all very well. I've got lots of modern commentaries on my bookshelf, um, although some of them weren't just written this year. Some of them are from, you know, uh, 2015 or 1996. So that's the past already. But what about reading ancient Christian commentaries? There's a whole series now of commentaries called the Ancient Christian Commentary on Scripture, which uh, has compiled extracts on every passage of Scripture from the early church. Then there's the um, Reformation Commentary on Scripture, which is particularly close to my heart because I wrote one of the volumes on that, uh, in that, on 1, 1 2 Thessalonians uh, the pastoral epistles and Philemon. Um, and we basically got together lots of comments from Reformation and 17th century sources commenting on scripture. So if I'm preaching on 1 2 Thessalonians or the pastoral epistles, I pick up that volume and I look at what, uh, what the reformers and the Puritans thought about those passages of scripture. Uh, I always look at Calvin when I'm preaching because Calvin, 16th century commentator, always has some interesting observations or applications or doctrinal uh, reflections on a passage that I'm preaching on that I find him always useful. I don't always agree with him, uh, but I always find him useful. Sometimes you find in the ancient commentaries things that modern commentaries don't even think about. So, uh, or some arresting thoughts. I, I've been reading um, uh, through Ephesians. Uh, we've been doing that as a staff team. Uh, as well, and looking at Ephesians every week. In Ephesians 1, it says, uh, you know, grace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And many Christians will think, why doesn't he mention the Holy Spirit there? We're supposed to be Trinitarian. Why isn't it God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit? Why doesn't he mention the Spirit? And you can search for hours in the modern commentaries for an answer to that, or someone who's even thought of that question which is obvious to me as a Trinitarian Christian. Um, the only person I found who addressed that, however briefly, was Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas has a commentary on Titus, um, sorry, on Ephesians. And he says, why doesn't he mention the Spirit? Let's have a think about that. And it's just a few lines. And so that's helpful to, to get that. Also, when reading through his uh, Aquinas' commentary on Titus 3 recently um, for, for a sermon I was preparing, uh, I found he had some very helpful observations about heresy and what is heresy. And he says, you know, if uh, if someone denies the Trinity or if they teach that sex outside of marriage is not a sin, 
They are a heretic. And they're the kind of people you should be avoiding. And I, I don't remember reading that in his uh, summer, in his theology book, but it's there in his commentary. Um, and that's very helpful. We, they sometimes see things that we don't. Um, and, and those observations can be very helpful in our own day. Do you ever read sermons? I mean, I have to confess now that you, I get a passage and I, I'm the churches I, I minister to, we use a lectionary. So the, the passage comes up and you're thinking, what's the best way into this? How can I arrest the attention? And then normally, uh, if I get particularly stuck, I, mean, I obviously labour away at the Greek originally and then consult all the weighty commentaries, but, but maybe uh, I might pull up and see what Spurgeon said on it because you can get it pretty encyclopedic. And it's sometimes a throwaway comment there, which is the spark that you need to light fire to all of the research that you've done already to come up with that thing. And I, I, I mean, I, as a younger Christian, I would listen voraciously to, to give you my age, the cassette tapes as they were at the time, of, of Lloyd-Jones's sermons, um, which I know aren't ancient, but they're still, you know, they're from the 60s. It's before I was born. So these things, I think, can be quite useful for, for building up as well. I mean, is that your experience? Well, definitely. Um, there's that old um, that old poem, isn't there, about Spurgeon? There once was a preacher called Spurgey who was no fan of liturgy, because he was a Baptist, but his sermons are fine, and I use them as mine, and so do the rest of the clergy. Um, I think as long Very as you're good. not stealing Spurgeon's <laughs> entire sermon like that, um, yeah, I love him because he's got such arresting ways of applying things, uh, of expanding the text and often makes observations in the text that I hadn't seen uh, before. George Whitfield is the same. I learned things by looking at his sermons, um, particularly about Genesis, I remember, that I, I just hadn't seen before. Um, I always have something on the go um, by my bed at the moment. I've got one Timothy, the sermons on one Timothy by John Calvin. Great to, to see how he preached it. Uh, not just how he understood the text, but how he's applying it to his own congregation. Lots to learn there. What about histories, um, Chris? Do you actually read old history books? I'm thinking like um, Eusebius's church history from the early church, you know, an early church guy writing about yeah. the history of the church in the first 300 years, or Fox's Book of Martyrs from the Reformation era, um, a book from the Reformation time about the martyrs of the church. That kind of thing can be quite inspiring. And eye-opening too. I think I think that's true. I think that's true. And I do find that there is in the older biographies and the older histories, there's much more of a willingness to try and trace the providence of God within history. Whereas in a lot of modern writing, that's a kind of an anathema to the modern historical method. So you're listing a whole lot of things which have happened, if I could put it in those terms. And I find that a useful way of looking at things. Um, Eusebius, yes, I, I suppose I do from time to time. Josephus is, is another one uh, who, who's not a Christian, but he, he's writing at the end of the first century about Judaism. So clearly there's plenty of, of interest there. And yeah, yeah I found I mean, that useful. I, I, I looked at um, Josephus recently doing a sermon on uh, part of the Gospels and um, just there was a reference in a commentary. And so I went back and read some Josephus and it gave me absolutely brilliant background for the sermon itself. So there's, there was a detail in one of Jesus' parables about someone who went away to be made king. Um, and, and that was actually a detail from the history of the time um, that, that I didn't necessarily know about. 
but the, the people listening to Jesus would have known. And Josephus gave me the detail. And that was just brilliant because mm. it, it, it cracked open something key about the parable that I wouldn't otherwise have known. It was, it was terrific. Yeah, I mean, certainly if you're going back that distance, I find there's a lot of the literature written by Jews, either between in the Old and New Testaments, that era, or in the first century, early second century, which is not Holy Scripture. I'm not suggesting it is, but it's, it does give interesting illumination on the New Testament because it shows you how the people who were listening to Jesus heard him because it gives you a sense, a kind of an insight into their background, what was going on at the time. You know, if you were to read something written nowadays by um, an author who makes mention to Trump, uh, if you were reading that 400 years down the line, you'd wonder quite, what is Trump? And why is this sort of now being mentioned? So, but to know what the background is, because everybody knows, you know, but we forget these things. So I think they are interesting for that. As I say, they're not scripture, but they they enrich things. They turn the colour up. And there's been a few times when I found it very yeah, just quite telling and useful to try and get quite what is going on in a passage. Um, I mean, to be really, really pathetic and pernickety. I mean, I, I'd spent a long time uh, this morning uh, looking at textual variants on a text. So you've got the New Testament text itself. What does it mean when Jesus says we have to be salted with fire? This is in Mark at the end of chapter 9. What does salted with fire mean? How do we, what an odd thing. And so you then find out that some of the va the variant readings of that passage make reference to sacrifices. And then you look in Leviticus and you say, oh, well, so you, the grain offering does have salt with it then. And so you start even just with these, I mean, it's not history, but in old books, but it kind of is. It's old manuscripts of the Old Testament. Even they can help with wider application. I mean, that's a bit, a bit uh, nerdy. Doctrine, I know. Um, doc doctrine has just got better and better, hasn't it, since the early church? And so um, we, we know things things now, our doctrine now must be better because it's 2,000 years later, just like our scientific knowledge is better and our medical knowledge is better. Surely our doctrine now is better than it ever was in the history of the church. Is that is, is that true, Chris? Well, that is true, which of course is why the Church of England is so united around this uh, this new, new doctrine. I think, I mean, that, that's the other great thing, isn't it? Because all doctrine is, this is a sweeping statement, all doctrine is developed within a culture and it's developed within um, a particular worldview. And so nowadays, uh, as we create and or try to develop doctrine, to use this phrase of Newman, development of doctrine, then we, we are doing so with assumptions which are not shared by previous generations. We have certain assumptions about how the world works, assumptions about how human relationships work and all the rest of it. And I think we don't necessarily understand the assumptions we have until we read doctrine from another era who don't share our assumptions and come at things entirely differently. And it can bring you up short. It can make you wonder quite... Now, I, I have to agree. I, I mean, I have a, a particular saying, which is if something is new, it's wrong. But that's just my sort of curmudgeoniness. So I, but I do think we want to be able to say that if we are going to say that we are part of the One Holy Catholic Apostolic, Apostolic Church, I want to be able to trace my doctrine back to the apostles. And sometimes the route I'm doing that is by going back through the early church to the apostles in that way as well. So I do think there is something to be said for ancient doctrine. Yes, um, I think it was Charles Hodge from Old Princeton in the 19th oh, century who said something like, you know, he boasted of the fact that we've never taught anything new 
here yes, at Princeton. Indeed. We've never yes, taught anything indeed. new. No novel yes, doctrine has come out of our mouths. Well, I mean, apart from the fact that you were Presbyterian, Charles, um, yes. But it, the, the boast is interesting that he didn't Don't want... when he's down. <laughs> we, he didn't want to be teaching anything that hadn't been taught throughout the history of the church. And so whether it was true or not, the boast is interesting uh, in itself. Often you find things in the past that just haven't been said before or haven't been focused on today either. So if I want to... If I was to do something on the Holy Spirit today, I'd go back and read John Owen again on the Holy Spirit because some of his work is exceptional and unique in the history of the church. His book on the communion that we have with the three persons of the Trinity, is that it, it stands out. It's outstanding in that way. And it might be difficult to, to read some of that stuff because Owen you know, reads like a roughly dashed off translation of a piece of thinking done in Ciceronian Latin. Um, but actually there is doctrinal reflection and biblical reflection in there that you just won't find in modern books at all. No, I think that's true. Now, Lee, I'm looking now at the clock and thinking this is supposed to be sort of like a coffee break podcast that people can listen to and their coffee will be getting cold. So indeed. So if I, so, let me kick this one off and then you can join in. So if we were saying, what's a good way in? Where, where can we start? There's a book which I used uh, a lot during the pandemic. Uh, I was writing daily devotional emails that were being circulated around uh, members of the congregations I look after. And I found a very fruitful way of thinking about how do we cope in plague and pandemic, All Things for Good by Thomas Watson. Now, he's a Puritan, uh, but the Banner of Truth have produced that work in their Puritan paperbacks series. So it's not, it's a slim volume. It's not too long. And they've, um, or the editors have updated uh, the language and the grammar. It's a bit abridged. It's very much more digestible, therefore, in that sense. So I would commend, dear listener, the, to you, uh, Thomas Watson's book, All Things for Good, as a way in to this reading older books. Uh, and that Puritan paperback series is good. Reformation Heritage Books, who are an American outfit, so their books aren't so readily available here. They also do a Puritan Treasures for Today, something like that, but another edition of Slim. So are there any other particular books that you would recommend, just as a starter, a way into this? Yes. I mean, there are, there are many. I, I think I mentioned before the ancient Christian commentary on Scripture and things like that. Um, which I think are absolutely invaluable for giving insights on scripture. There is coming out soon, I may have mentioned this before, the ESV Church History Study Bible, um, which I think will Very be coming good. out next year. And that is like, um, it's like your normal ESV Study Bible, but all the comments in the, in the comment section at the bottom of every page on every part of scripture are from um, other commentators in the past. It's a study Bible, but in sepia. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> in black and white. That's right, because uh, we only have colour now. That, that's right. And I think that is a great way in, just a, a simple way in. You don't have to buy all the ancient commentaries. You can get these extracts and compilations. That, that has its problems, of course. But uh, if you want to do deeper study, you've got to have to buy the commentaries themselves. But to, to at least see something, a glimpse of... Um, Christian reflection on the scriptures. You're not the only one who's ever thought of this passage and neither is the person who taught you when you were a child. 
either. So we often these days, uh, people denigrate the study of church history and, and that sort of thing and old commentaries, but they do idolize the preachers who are 20 or 30 years older than them, which is ridiculous because that is church history, really. Um, if you listen to other people preaching and take what they say as true, then why won't you listen to other people who are dead preaching? Is the fact that they're dead, does that suddenly put them out of the universal church? Does that suddenly mean they're not united to Christ anymore or have nothing to teach you? No. So if you're going to listen to preachers today uh, and be taught by them, why won't you be taught by people who just happen to be with Christ, which is better by far, um, and have left us their teaching to reflect on? And I think that's, that's worth pondering, isn't it? Thank you. Well, that seems a good place to, to end. So keep an eye on the Crossway website. I assume it's Crossway, the ESV yes, Historical Crossway Study Bible. Crossway are publishing the ESV Church History Study Bible next year. Brilliant. Good. Right. Well, we shall, dear listener, we shall leave you to do your washing up, wash up your coffee cup, and we shall uh, speak to you again at some stage. Cheerio then. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Church Society podcast. You can find the whole podcast archive on our website, churchsociety.org. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your usual podcast app. And we'd love it if you are able to leave a review or give us a rating over there as well. Mm-hmm.